Thank you, Mark, very much for that introduction. Thank you all for being here. Uh, this is, as you all know, an extraordinary place, and I've heard about it uh, many times from various friends who've been here, and indeed Mark himself um, bought me a cup of coffee, I think, in London a few years ago and sat me down and said, I'm doing this extraordinary project and you have to be part of it. And I didn't quite believe what he was telling me, but actually uh, I shouldn't have done because he only told me about a third of what is actually the truth of, of, of what I see all around me here. It's funny, climbing back into a pulpit like this, I haven't actually stood in a pulpit like this since I stood down as Bishop of Durham three and a half years ago. So climbing up here, I thought, oh, yeah, this is what I ought to, uh, used to do for a living. Um, <laughs> And uh, that reminded me of um, the old story, since we're talking about St. Paul tonight, of the bishop who said plaintively, everywhere St. Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. <laughs> <clears throat> and you just wonder, uh, are we doing something wrong? And it's, it's actually quite a, good, quite a good question because... Uh, there are reasons why Paul generated riots, and there are perhaps reasons why bishops try not to. It doesn't seem to fit the image quite so well. Um, but Paul lived at the intersection, the, the clashing point between several different worlds, different worlds, different worldviews, and he was standing in the middle and trying to do something new in the middle of that. Um, what was the new thing that he was trying to do? How did he go about doing it? What's at the heart of all that? That's what I want to talk about tonight under this rather grand title of, of how did Paul invent uh, Christian theology. That seems to be an extraordinary thing to say, and I shall justify it in a minute. Um, but I want to say a little bit autobiographically about how that theme came about. Some years ago, I went to Princeton on sabbatical from Durham in order to write the big book on Paul that I'd been planning to write on and off for about 40 years. I did my dissertation on Paul um, many years ago, and I've been coming back and back and back and hoping to get this big book done. And it was to be a book on Pauline theology. So you know what Paul's theological topics are to do with Christ, to do with the Spirit, to do with the cross and resurrection, to do with justification, the law, eschatology, all those great themes that we all know about. And I have, over the years, tried to figure out ways of saying things about what Paul is saying which would more or less fit together. But as I was working on that in the first wave of what I was doing in Princeton, and you can imagine having been a bishop for about seven years, it was extraordinary suddenly to be released into the wild, as it were, and to have four months of, of, of just entirely self-driven research. But I, there was another question which kept looming up behind the specific discussions of particular topics. And, and, and the question was not so much here are Paul's central themes, what can we say about them, but why is Paul doing this sort of thing at all since nobody has done it like that before? Paul is doing something new, distinctively, recognizably new in his theology, in what we now with long hindsight call Christian theology. Of course, Paul didn't call it that. Um, that's a word which we now use as we, as we look back. But there is a sense with Paul that there is a new discipline, a new activity, a new task which is coming to birth. Why did he do this? Why not just, if you're going to write letters, just give moral guidance? In this situation, this is what you do. In that situation, please don't go that route or whatever it is. Um, why not just pass on traditional teaching? We need to remind you, and Paul does this once or twice, 
we need to remind you that this is what the whole church does, and this is the story the whole church tells. Well, he can do that. Why does he do so much more? What can we learn from the much more that he does? And as I say, not just in terms of the topics he's talking about, but in terms of the activity of this theological exploration. Our tendency is to think of theology then or now as a set of topics that you need to believe. We teach a course in theology in a Sunday school, in a seminary, wherever, and we've got our syllabus. These are the things you need to learn. This is what different people have said about them. Here is my read of it. But for Paul, there is something more than that. It isn't just that if we're justified by faith, we have to know the content of that faith. That's true, but that's not nearly enough. Now, In what sense, then, is Paul inventing something? When you look around Paul's world and look at his Greek world, that is the world um, that, that stemmed from Plato and Aristotle half a millennium before and so on, we find that there is such a thing as theology, but theology is a sort of sub branch of the discipline that they call physics. In the ancient world, physics means the study of everything that is, the world of nature, the world of everything there is, including the gods. So yes, they too talk about theologia in Greek, theology, but it's not an activity in the way that it becomes with Paul. It's simply some people speculate this about the gods and other people say that about the gods and that's the end of that and it's not a very important topic actually as topics go in ancient philosophy. And as for the Jews, you might think, well, they surely would have a lot to say theologically, but no, Jews do not characteristically do theology. What they do is Torah, the Jewish law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then the expansions and developments of all that. This doesn't encourage further exploration into who God is because God has revealed himself particularly to Abraham, particularly in the events of the Exodus and to and through Moses. Now there were some Jews in roughly Paul's day who did do more exploring, some philosophically minded ones like Philo of Alexandria, but it wasn't the classic thing. For them, the big question about God was not, can we understand him more, but when is he coming back? When is he coming back? Most Christians today, I think, don't realize the extent to which that was a major question in Paul's day. Because Israel's God had left the temple at the time when it was destroyed by the Babylonians, according to Ezekiel, where you get the whirling wheels of the chariot, God's throne chariot. God leaves because the temple is in disgrace, and there was a promise that he would come back, but throughout the literature of the second temple period, nobody ever says that he has come back. They say that he will. Malachi says that. Zechariah says that. They echo and quote prophecies from Isaiah to that effect. Nobody ever says that it's happened yet. That's the question, and that actually is part of the thing that eventually gives birth to Christian theology. But there is nothing like what we find in Paul, which is a blend of Jewish narrative with quite fresh analysis. Perhaps the closest that Second Temple Judaism would come might be the book we call The Wisdom of Solomon. That would be an interesting discussion to have. But if Paul 
surely Jesus himself. Somebody said to me the other day, but surely Jesus himself was the first great Christian theologian. Well, in a sense, that's true, but what Jesus is doing is not so much encouraging people to reflect on and develop their reflections about who God is and what's going on. Jesus is telling people that God is becoming king right now, and you better get on board. That's more of an announcement than an exploration. And of course, Paul includes his announcement that in Jesus that has happened, but Paul has to go further for some reason. And somebody else said to me the other day, but surely there were other Christian theologians before Paul. And the answer is, well, there might have been, we just don't happen to know about them. And actually, I think that when you study Paul and see the breadth and depth and power and passion of his intellect and his, the way his heart and head come together, people like that are rare. They're very rare, and I don't think there were many of them in any generation in Christian history. But uh, So if Paul is uh, unique in his way, we, we find all sorts of things in Paul which tell us that actually there were lots of theological insights which seem to have come with the turf of very early Christianity, and Paul isn't so much developing them as just finding new ways to state them. People used to say that uh, the early church didn't think of Jesus as divine. That was a much later idea which came in when they moved away from their Jewish home base and out into the wider world. That's simply not the case. Paul clearly believes in what you might call the divinity of Jesus. He doesn't put it like that, but he clearly believes in it. But the way that he talks about it, I think, makes it clear that that is actually a given from the very beginning in early Christianity. And there are other things like that as well. So why did Paul develop this new activity? Was it just he had a sort of a quirky mind that liked exploring things the way that he does? Why does he take on these topics? Why does he reach these conclusions? Why not just work to produce some kind of a fixed catechism? You know, you, you people out there in the churches are going to need to know what to believe, how to behave. I and the boys will get together, and perhaps some girls as well, and we will write um, some uh, brief dogmatic statements and some moral guidelines and we'll make sure that goes around everyone and then we'll all know where we are and we won't have to worry. That's precisely what Paul doesn't do and there are reasons for that and these reasons I think are very profoundly important actually for us today though we'll come to that later. Here is the thesis that I develop in the book and this actually is the center and heart of the big book that I've written, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. And I say this because it's just possible that there may be some people here who may be thinking of writing reviews about the book. And I've had five reviews so far in the UK, and none of them have even mentioned that this was the central claim of the book. So I'm just putting down a marker, guys. You hear what I'm saying? Um, if you're going to write about it, please make sure you make this point. Paul, and, and throughout the series of which this book is a part, I have done... Uh, a model of worldviews. Now, worldviews are not what you look at, they're what you look through. I'm looking through spectacles at the moment. I'm not going to try and take them off in case I disrupt the microphone. But um, sometimes you have to take your spectacles off and look at them, and that's usually quite uncomfortable, certainly for me, because once I've taken them off, I can't actually see very clearly. And that's how worldviews work as well. We all look at the world through a grid of what we take for granted, a web of implicit narratives, of cultural symbols, of all sorts and conditions of things which help us bring the world into focus until something happens 
which makes us feel disorientated or even feels a bit, feel a bit seasick. And then sometimes, probably with help, we may need to take off our worldview spectacles and either adjust them or get a new set altogether. And so before I get into Paul's theology in part three of this four-part book, I talk about Paul's worldview, the, the symbols, the praxis, the stories which seem to Paul, at least, to be the things which he presupposes and which he's then trying to get his converts, his churches, to have in their worldview as well. And it's one of the big questions that I asked when I started this book. What was the center of Paul's symbolic universe? Now, you could say it was Jesus. You could say it was the cross and resurrection. And that would be true as well. But when I'm talking about symbols, I'm talking about in the Jewish world, the symbols are things like the food laws, the fact that you only eat with other Jews, the fact that you circumcise your male children, that you keep Sabbath once a week, the fact that you may go to a pilg on pilgrimage to the temple. Those are the symbols which not only mark you out as who you are, but which say to the wider world, we are this sort of community. That's how symbols work, and you have stories that go with that, that reinforce it, that help people to see where they are in some larger narrative. What is the symbol of Paul's world? And I come up in chapter 6 of my book with the hypothesis that the main symbol of Paul's world is the church itself. The church itself as a united and holy community. Because that's the thing which people on the street will see, or may not see, which will tell them that something new has burst in upon the world, there is a new reality let loose upon the earth, and that it looks like this. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, and I do think Ephesians is by Paul, that's another question that comes up in scholarly circles constantly, um, Paul says that the aim is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And what does that mean? It means that the many splendid, many colored wisdom of God, the fact that God has called together people of all sorts and conditions, every shape and size and type and color and all the rest of it, and God has brought them all together in a new family. The Roman emperors would love to have done that, but they never managed it. And by bringing them together in this new family and by making it the community which in Ephesians Paul says they should be, this is the sign to the powers of this age that Jesus is Lord and they are not. That's what I mean by the church as the united and holy community which is itself the symbol of what this worldview is all about. And Paul is desperate to get his converts to look at the world through that pair of spectacles as well, like he does. But how are you going to get this? How are you going to accomplish? How on earth, looking around the ancient Mediterranean world, which was polyglot and pluriform, and you know, we talk about being in a pluralist society today, that was a very thoroughly pluralist society in Paul's day. How is this community going to come about? Not by somebody who you may or may not see for the next three, five, ten years sending you a letter saying, believe this, 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 and this, or do that, 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 and that. Because this community doesn't have the boundary markers. It doesn't have circumcision, the food laws, the Sabbath, the temple, all those things. The answer that Paul comes up with, and this is particularly, of course, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, 
The answer is you need to learn who is the true God. Discovering who the true God is, is at the heart of all Christian living. And with that, discovering who are the people of this true God. And for the Gentile world, think of Paul going to Athens. Here he is, we hear you're talking about some strange foreign divinities. We need to know about this. Backstory, Socrates was made to drink hemlock because, among other things, he was accused of preaching foreign divinities. Hmm. Bad news, Paul. Here you are in the high court in the land. What are you going to do? Foreign divinities? Paul says, well, I noticed that you have this altar to the unknown God. It's actually a picture up there. I can see it. Most of you can't. There is Paul pointing to agnostotheo, to an un- unknown God. He says, well, you've left a window open there, and I'm going to tell you who it is that you ought to be seeing through that window. It's the God who made heaven and earth and all that is in them. And he is neither simply part of the world nor detached from the world. That's one in the eye for the Stoics over there and one in the eye for the Epicureans over there. Paul knows what he's doing. And Luke has summarized this. I mean, face it, you can read through what Paul said on the Areopagus in about two minutes flat. You're not going to tell me that Paul, who is a man who literally could preach people to death, you know, there's a boy who fell out of the window and all that, um, <laughs> that Paul, given the chance to talk to the greybeards in Athens, would only talk for two minutes? No. Um, This is a summary. But anyway, Paul is talking about who is the true God. He doesn't need to say that in the synagogue. What he needs to say to the synagogue is what the true God has now done. But to the Gentile world, and the church is now to be pluriform in that sense, from Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, they need to reflect on who is this true God. And he can't just run the standard Jewish story. Here is the Tanakh, the Old Testament, as we later Christians call it. Because he wants to say that actually the promises have been fulfilled. Yahweh has returned. Israel's God has come back. The exile is over. Israel's long wait has come to its end. And now everything is different. And most of this... It's pretty well nonsense. I told the story the other night when I was speaking at HBU. You have to remember that this is what it was like for Paul. Paul coming into a city like Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth. I had an experience 10 or a dozen years ago when I was in a conference in Atlanta in Georgia. And uh, it was the SBL. It was in November. And I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning one day and I phoned my daughter at home because I knew she would be glued to the television because England were playing Australia in the final of the Rugby World Cup. Some of you will know what's coming next. And I, I phoned her because I knew when the game was ending. And she was ecstatic because the scores had been level until the very last minute And the poster boy of English rugby, Johnny Wilkinson, had dropped a goal in the last minute. And England had won the World Cup. And England was ecstatic. I was ecstatic. My daughter was dancing around the room. I put the phone down at 6 o'clock in the morning in a hotel lobby in Atlanta, Georgia. And I wanted to go up to the clerks at the desk and say, Do you know what just happened? England just won the Rugby World Cup. I realized I might as well walk out onto the main street of St. Andrews and tell them that uh, China had just defeated Germany at table tennis or something. Sorry, we're not actually terribly interested in that. And, And then I waited a little bit and gradually the hotel woke up and conference participants emerged. And among them, the first person that I saw who knew that there had been a famous sporting contest going on 
was an Australian. <laughs> so I had good news. But it was foolishness to the Americans and it was scandalous to the Australians. I didn't immediately see just how useful that story would be, but it, it's, so it has proved. So Paul comes into a town in Greece, and his message is that the world has a new Lord. That's fighting talk. We've already got one of those. He lives in Rome. He's called Caesar. Who is this new Lord? What on earth are you talking about? Well, he's Jewish. That's bad news for a start for most of these people. You know, we maybe like some of our Jewish neighbors, but... We don't imagine that anyone from that branch would actually turn out to be somebody hugely significant. And, and by the way, he was crucified. Now, this is just completely out of line. Crucifixion is the most shameful, horrible way to die. It's a sign that you're cursed. It's a sign that you're just at the lowest of the low. But God raised him from the dead. Well, now, come on, Paul. What have you been drinking or smoking or what? We all know that people don't get raised from the dead. Any Jews listening in would be scandalized because Paul is saying that this Jesus is Israel's Messiah, even though he was crucified. Any Gentiles listening would just know the man's crazy. And yet, Paul says, folly to some, scandal to others, but to us are being saved. It's the power of God. Because always some hearers find, to their astonishment and sometimes to their anxiety, that it seems to be making sense that their spectacles are coming into a new focus. That suddenly they're seeing that everything means something that they hadn't imagined before and that it's finding them out and it seems to be going right down them like a hot drink on a cold day. And it transforms them. Something very odd about the gospel. And that's why theology is necessary. It's necessary because you need to know who this new God is that you've never heard of before. It's necessary because the heart of your life from now on is going to be worship and prayer. And if you don't know who God is, and how are you going to worship him? How can you pray to him? And if you don't know who God's people are, how are you going to share in their common life and their purpose and their mission? In other words, it's not just about the topics of theology. Can you get your Christology sorted out? Do you understand the meaning of the cross, etc.? It's, it's, it's a level behind that. It's a necessary activity. You know the saying, give someone a fish and you feed them for a day, teach someone to fish and you feed them for life. Well, you can give someone a dogma and you'll keep them sound as long as that dogma is what's in question. Teach someone to think theologically, to think in Christ. And they will be a valuable part of the church as long as they go on doing that. And part of the point then, I'll come back to this again, um, is that from the New Testament onwards, the church doesn't give people things which will keep the next generation in immaturity. Because, you know, if you write it all out and put it on the shelf, there you are, there's a book with all the answers in, so you don't need to bother, you just go and look up answer number 273. Oh, that's what we do. Okay, fine. No. The New Testament, beginning with Paul as the earliest writer, is the sort of book that forces each generation to do fresh business with the questions, the big questions. Who is God? Who are God's people? What's God's purpose? Where's it all going? The 
church will only be united and holy if it's doing theology as its core activity. And I don't mean that everyone has to go to seminary. I don't mean that everyone has to learn Hebrew and Greek, though most of you should, of course. Um, <clears throat> theology, in the sense that I'm meaning it, is a whole people of God activity, each according to their gifts and abilities. Because sometimes, and one of the privileges of my life when I was Bishop of Durham, was to see this again and again and again. You get the most wonderful insights from the most surprising people. People who've left school at 14 and have worked hard all their lives, but have been faithful, believing Christ followers, and who have discovered and discerned things that escape some of us with lots of degrees to our name and so on. So for Paul, theology is a new challenge which comes in three stages. Preachers always have three stages. I was glad when I found these three. There we are. Um, <laughs> first, it's a new sort of knowledge, a new sort of knowledge. This is difficult for us to grasp. Again, it's like the worldview thing. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, from now on we know no one according to the flesh. We once knew the Messiah that way, but we know him thus no longer, because if anyone is in the Messiah, new creation. There's a sense that something new has happened, and you need new eyes to see it, new ways of knowing to glimpse it, like Jesus in John 3 saying, unless one is born from water and the Spirit, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Something is happening, but you'll only see it when you get new eyes, when you get new vision. In Romans 12, he says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern in practice what God's will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he says, When it comes to evil, I want you to stay as little babies. Just You don't need to know about that stuff. But in your thinking, I want you to be grown up. Tragically, sometimes the church gets that the other way around. So fixated about sin that we go on about that all the time. But when it comes actually to thinking things through, who God is, who God's people are, what God's purpose is, we're not terribly good at it. And there's a couple of passages which I'll come back to once or twice because they're so important for Paul. In Galatians 4, verses 8 and following, he says, Now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back to these foolish things? And in 1 Corinthians 8, he talks again about knowing God and quickly corrects himself that actually the real knowledge is not your knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of you. And in the light of God's knowledge of you, what matters is love. There's a different sort of knowing and ultimately, it turns out to be love. And in 1 Corinthians 2, we could spend all evening on that. He says that actually, this stuff that I preach is, of course, foolishness out there. But among the mature, we do impart a wisdom, though it's not the wisdom that people out there would recognize. It's a different sort of hidden wisdom. As soon as you say that, I can feel some people think that sounds as though the church is retreating into a private fantasy. We've invented this clever, pretty little theological world around ourselves, and we sort of luxuriate in it. That's precisely not the case. For Paul, what has happened in Jesus and supremely in his resurrection is the launching of new creation. And that's not a different creation. It's the same creation renewed. 
goes all the way through to Romans 8 where Paul says that God will do for the whole cosmos at the end what he did for Jesus on the first Easter day. Creation itself will be set. And, and the great thing about the knowing of which he's speaking is that you get to know this new creation. And you know one another within that new creation. And it all suddenly makes sense. And Paul relates this new knowing, this new thinking through activity, directly to both unity and holiness in the church. In Philippians 2, he talks about unity and says um, that I want you to come to the common mind in Christ. There's a lot in Philippians about the mind. Have this mind among yourselves which you have in the Messiah Jesus. And it's all about unity. And Galatians 2, he's teaching them about justification in order that the church may learn that all those who believe in the Messiah belong at the same table no matter what their background is. And thinking is also about holiness. Not just here are the rules, but here's how to think about what you ought to be doing. Here's how to glimpse new creation and to realize that you're called to be part of that new creation and therefore there are certain ways of being which are appropriate and certain others which aren't. And that's totally different from here are 19 new regulations that you've got to keep. No, it's a matter of growing up to see new creation, to discover that you're part of it, and then to see and understand how that should be. Romans, again, Romans 12 I mentioned. Romans 8, the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. Ephesians 4 and 5, I haven't got time to go into them all, several passages. Philippians 3.19, he warns against people whose minds are set on earthly things. And says, our citizenship is in heaven. And please, that doesn't mean so we'll be going there one day. The Philippians, some of them, were citizens of Rome. It didn't mean they would be going to live in Rome one day. It worked exactly the other way around. Their job was to bring Roman civilization to northern Greece. Go figure. Colossians 3 verse 2, he talks about set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And above doesn't mean some far-off fantasy and fairyland. It means God's space, God's heaven, which eventually is designed to mesh completely with our space. So the first thing is the new sort of knowledge. The second thing is the new sort of human beings. Colossians 3.10, he says, we are renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. This is the place of thought in ordinary Christianity. We are to be renewed in knowing. It's an activity. It's something which takes effort. If you stop thinking about it, you will simply drift with the flow of whichever cultural pressures happen to be going on in the media, around you, etc. There is a virtue in the strict sense in the practice of thinking Christianly because God wants people, not puppets. God doesn't just want to pull the strings and we just automatically do this and that. God has made us humans to be thinking beings, to grow up in our minds so that we can figure it out, so that we can become mature. Because God is God, each generation needs to explore him afresh. Oh yes, to learn from all the wisdom that we can from the past, but never so that we just look it up, get the right answer, and then don't bother. No, each generation needs to bother. And if we don't, you can whistle for the unity and holiness of the church. So, 
new sort of knowledge, new sort of human beings, a new sort of task. A t- and this, is, this is how I conceive Paul's conception of the task of theology, that it is rooted in Scripture, it is expressed in worship and prayer, and especially in the great stories. In Scripture, you've got the stories of creation, of covenant, of exodus, of, of, of the wilderness wanderings, the monarchy, um, all that stuff, and particularly then the exile, the restoration, and the question mark after that. How's it all going to end? And for Paul, Christian theology is learning to live within that complex narrative, to be rooted in Scripture, not just as a backstory about, well, some things that happened way back when, which we may find some moral examples. No, to learn that this is God's story and that you are now called to be part of it. That's really one of the foundation stones of all Christian theology. But also to learn that when you're telling this story, it itself is an act of worship. In my tradition, the public reading, we, we often forget this, but this is how it works. The public reading of Scripture, morning and evening prayer, Old and New Testament each time, is not primarily to inform the congregation about bits of the Bible they may have forgotten. It's to rehearse the mighty acts of God and so to praise God for those mighty acts. And we learn by kind of listening in on that praise and finding out how to join in. So for Paul, the new sort of task is prayerful scriptural reflection on who this God is, who his people are, where it's all going. In technical terms, monotheism, election, and eschatology. One God, one people of God, one future for God's world. And it's derived from Israel's scriptures and traditions, but they have been utterly transformed, as Paul sees, by Jesus the Messiah, crucified and risen, and by the Spirit. And because he is who he is, and because the hope of Israel was that finally the whole world would get in on this act, Paul sees that the task of theology is to be rooted in the scriptures and in prayer and worship and those great narratives but to articulate that afresh again and again in relation to the wider world all around. That's what he was doing in Athens. Here are the Stoics, here are the Epicureans, here are the Cynics, here are the ordinary street-level pagans, and Paul trumps them all by telling the story of the Jewish God who is now revealed in Jesus. Paul thus invents a new discipline for which there is no evidence before, but which then continues to this day not as an abstract intellectual exercise for those who like arranging ideas in pretty patterns, but because this is the task of the whole church, which is needed if this non-ethnic, non-geographically rooted new people of God in Christ and the Spirit is to be who it's supposed to be. So how then does he do it? How then does he do it? Generations of people writing about Pauline theology have taken the categories from the 16th century or the 17th century, which is to say the categories from the Protestant reformers particularly, categories to do with how you get saved. Paul has a great deal to say about how you get saved, but that's not actually the only thing that he's talking about, and often it's not the principal thing. From letter to letter, that often isn't the main thing he's talking about. I have a mantra which I run regularly which goes like this. We must stop giving 19th century answers to 16th century questions and start giving 21st century answers to 1st century questions. That's hard. 
we can easily just collapse back into replaying the narratives from the last 400 years of our tradition. When we look and see what Paul is doing, it's explosive in ways that so many Pauline theologies have just not caught up with. Back to Athens, that first question, who is God? The word God is a question mark. It ought to be seen that way in our culture today. We are mostly, most of our modern Western culture is de facto deist. Moral therapeutic deism is how Christian Smith describes the kind of innate culture of contemporary young North America. Deism, yeah, there's a God somewhere. We kind of acknowledge him. He's probably set a few rules. He's vaguely concerned with what we do, but he doesn't actually intervene. So our task is just to get on and and be nice to each other and so on. Well, being nice to each other is better than not, but that's not a very good view of God. Contrast Galatians 4, 1 to 11, where Paul tells a miniature Exodus narrative We were slaves, and then God sent his son to rescue us. This is the Exodus story replayed. And then God sent his spirit to dwell in our hearts. This is the Exodus story where God rescues his people from Egypt and then comes in person to live in their midst. Only now it's about the God who sends the son and who sends the spirit of the son. And that's the moment at which Paul says, as I quoted before, Now that you know God, or rather have come to be known by God, how can you turn back to the old ways again? In other words, you either have this God, the Jewish God, Israel's God, revealed as the one who sends the Son and sends the Spirit of the Son, or you have some form of paganism. That is probably the real beginning of Christian theology right there. And you see the breathtaking range of that, even that short little passage How much is packed in there? Or 1 Corinthians 8, 6, in the context of the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul is faced with the question, how do you live as Christians in a pagan environment? And he reaches for the standard Jewish categories. The basic thing is we are monotheists, not polytheists. That's the starting point for figuring out how to live in a world of many temples and many gods and many lords. What's the central statement of Jewish monotheism? The Shema. The prayer which Jews pray day by day, noble prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul takes that prayer and he doesn't add Jesus on at the outside. He finds Jesus inside it. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we to him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and we through him breathtaking moment in theology and then in Philippians 2 again have this mind think this way as you do in the Messiah who though he was in the form of God did not regard his equality with God as something to take advantage of but emptied himself and was obedient to the death of the cross therefore God has highly exalted him bestowed on him the name which is above every name that hath the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess Kyrios Jesus Christos. Jesus Christ is Kyrios, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And you missed it in the middle, but Paul is there quoting from Isaiah 45, the passage where Israel's one God, a fiercely monotheistic passage, says, to me and me alone, every tongue shall confess, every mouth shall swear, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Paul takes the passage which says, God will not share his glory with another, and says, God has shared his glory with Jesus. 
And he says, I want you to think this out. Verse 5. So who is God? Each generation needs to do that business. Not going back to, to a clean slate and starting again. Of course, you can't do that. But taking what Paul is saying and generating our own ways of dealing with that. And then the second big question, who are God's people? And again in Philippians, Philippians 3, 2 to 11, there's lots about thinking it through, thinking it out. Paul had all these privileges, yet I thought, I reckoned, I regarded, he says, that those privileges of my Jewish upbringing were actually as nothing compared with the surpassing worth of knowing the Messiah, Jesus my Lord. Knowing, knowing, knowing that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Deeply Jewish vision reworked around Jesus. Who is God? Who are God's people? What's God's future? Again, Romans 8. And look how this works. Romans 8 verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 are about the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit. The mind. There's a new way of thinking which the spirit wants to generate in you. And if you'll only abandon the fleshly ways of thinking, which means all sorts of things, not just obvious physical things, then the mind of the spirit can take over and you'll learn so many more things. And that's a great Exodus narrative right there in Romans 8, where having been set free from the bondage of sin and the law and death, one is then on the journey through the wilderness to the inheritance, and the inheritance is the entire new creation. But what does that feel like? How does that work at the time? There's a fascinating little passage three parts of the way through Romans 8, where Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself groans within us with inarticulate groanings. This is a description of prayer at the intersection of the love of God and the pain of the world. That's the church's vocation, my friends. But what Paul then says is, the one who searches the hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. It's the same phrase he'd used in Romans 8, 5 to 8, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according to God's will. Here is the task of the church summed up in the anguished prayer of the pain of the world meeting the indwelling love of God in the Spirit. And Paul talks about it in terms of the mind of the Spirit. Much more we could say about that, but I must hurry on. Monotheism, one God, now made known afresh in Jesus and the Spirit. Election, one people of God, now made known in a fresh, startling, scandalous new way through the cross and resurrection of Jesus and the Spirit. And that's, of course, where the doctrine of justification comes in. In two or three passages in particular in Paul, Romans 3, Galatians 3, Philippians 3, it's convenient, it's always threes or mostly, um, Romans 10 as well. Um, and uh, Paul wants to teach justification not just because you need to know that God has declared over all who believe in Jesus that they are already his people, that their sins are already forgiven. That's the classic Reformation doctrine, and it's true as far as it goes. But in every passage where Paul is talking about it, the larger context is you need to know this because if this is the truth, then Jews and Gentiles and everybody else who believes in Jesus belong at the same table. 
that emphasis on unity was completely screened out in the 16th century, partly because of the natural and laudable desire to have worship in people's own language, so that we've got language-based church groups. Pity, help us. I know what Paul would have said about that. And then we have other special interest church groups. This is not how it ought to be. The church is only assigned to the principalities and powers that Jesus is Lord and they aren't if the church is united. And the doctrine of justification, ironically, is not a doctrine that ought to split the church. It's a doctrine that says this is actually how we belong together. Monotheism, election, and eschatology. We have to think wisely about what God's future for the world is, not least so that we can engage in mission. If you think that God's future for the world is that he's going to throw the world in the trash can and leave some of us sitting on a cloud playing harps, then your mission will simply be to rescue and train a few more celestial harpists. That's not what it's about. If you think that already in Jesus' resurrection, new creation has dawned, and that you by the Spirit are called to be part of it, not just beneficiaries, but actually agents, then that eschatology will give rise to a mission which is radically different, which is transformative, not because we turn into social workers with saying occasional prayers, but because we are people who strangely, through that agonized prayer, through the mystery of serving one another, through the cup of cold water to the disciple, whatever it is, are actually doing the things which look small at the moment, but in the kingdom will loom much larger. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Get on with your work. Be steadfast, immovable, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why does he say that at the end of the resurrection chapter? Because this is part of the meaning of the doctrine of resurrection. That what you do in the present in Christ and by the Spirit is not going to be thrown away. Somehow in ways that we cannot begin to imagine, it will be part of God's new world. Monotheism, election, and eschatology then. And at each level, these are deeply and urgently practical. This is not about people with a bent for organizing ideas, just getting a pretty picture and writing it all out so that it makes sense. This is about the urgency of the ideas which will fund and fuel a church which is united, worshipping, holy, witnessing, which is in its very own life assigned to the powers that God has already won the victory in Jesus Christ. Three contemporary reflections as I draw towards a close. First, I think there is here a real challenge to contemporary systematic theology. Many of you won't have studied systematic theology as it's called. Uh, you may not see the point of this, but um, I, I work in a wonderful faculty in St. Andrews with some splendid, some world-famous, actually, theological colleagues, and we have this debate. And I am of the opinion, and I've said it to them, and I don't mind saying it in public to you, that sometimes even some of the best systematic theologians have allowed their ideas and their systems to float free, to leave the world of first century Judaism. And even if they say they believe in the authority of the Bible, often the way that seems to me to work out in practice, they might disagree, is that they organize all these concepts and sprinkle bits of Bible in, like you may put sugar on your cornflakes in the, in the morning, you know, 
it make it taste better but it's not actually generated by the narratives and the energy and the reflection which is actually there in scripture itself it leaves its initial roots. There's a very famous example of this, and again, I'm sticking my neck out because I'm going to be well, changing the metaphor, treading on somebody's toes here. Um, a couple of years ago, a bunch of our students wanted to study some of the recent writing on um, Paul and philosophy, and a lot of it goes back to Karl Barth's famous commentary on Romans, which he wrote at the end of the First World War, and it was described as the bombshell on the playground of the theologians. I went back and I reread Barth on Romans, which I hadn't done for years. And I came away with two conclusions. First, this is one of the most important books, theological books of the first half of the 20th century. Second, it isn't about Romans, which is a problem for a commentary. <laughs> how do you put that together? I don't actually know how you put that together. I just observe that actually there is far more in the Bible than much theology has actually been getting out. And often systematic theology sets out quite different topics and omits some very central ones. That's my first contemporary reflection. My second one is a challenge to do with topics and themes, and I've already just hinted at this. Soteriology matters. Of course it matters. Salvation matters. Of course it matters. We all know that. But if you take soteriology by itself it can collapse into Gnosticism. And it often has done. And actually Gnosticism, and this is said by many um, non-Christian commentators as well as Christian ones, Gnosticism is the default mode of much post-enlightenment Western living thought culture. What is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is the belief that some of us on this planet have a hidden spark inside us which is actually the spark of true gnosis, true knowledge, true life, true something or other, and that we are then the real ones, the enlightened ones, and that what has to happen is simply for that to be revealed to us. It isn't a fresh gift, it's not about grace, it's about God or somebody coming and showing us that we're the enlightened ones, and that means that we are able to float free from the surrounding culture. Many of the worst ideologies of the contemporary Western world have at least an element of... We, the enlightened ones, we know how the world works, we can go around the world doing what we want because we're the ones that matter and nobody else does. Very easy for us all to fall into that. And the Christian version of that I've already mentioned. We're the ones with the spark inside us. Maybe we do believe in grace, maybe this spark is a Christian spark, but one day we will fly away. Nope, that's not how it works. Instead... I want you to notice, and sorry if some of you aren't up with these discussions, but I know some of you are, that the biblical eschatology of new heavens, new earth, that is to say God making a whole new world in which God will be all in all, in which everything that is beautiful and lovely and wonderful in the present creation will be even more so enhanced. Once you have that vision, that biblical vision from Isaiah 11 and Revelation 21 and Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 and all over the place, once you have that, then your doctrine of salvation looks different as well. As if salvation is simply leaving this world and going to heaven, you construe how you get saved one way, but if salvation means being part of God's new creation then you construe it in very different ways. And just a word for those who know about these things, and don't worry if you don't, the so-called new perspective on Paul 
with which I have been associated, though actually there are about 17 different types of new perspective out there at the moment, so don't worry too much about that. Nevertheless, part of the point of that is an attempt to get at this vision of eschatology and to see how that works back in Paul himself. Sorry, that's a bit of an aside, really. That was my second contemporary reflection. My third one, which is, which is much more important, is that this is not, stress not, an elite activity. Theology is an every-member occupation. One of my favorite little moments from my time in Durham. Uh, Durham is very, basically a very poor diocese. There's a sort of cappuccino belt which runs up through the middle of the diocese, but to left and right, it's old industrial wasteland. The steel is gone, the coal is gone. They're not building ships anymore. The fisheries have been decimated by European regulations. The farmers had foot and mouth. Lots of poverty, lots of unemployment. And yet some struggling little congregations where people still turn up to beginner's theology groups on a Wednesday evening or whatever it may be. And I would go to those groups at the beginning and end of their course. And I remember one time giving out certificates to people significantly older than me. And I remember one little old lady coming up to me with her eyes shining as, as I gave her her certificate. And she said, you know, I've found out something, she said. Once you get into this stuff, you'll never be bored again as long as you live. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that's what it's all about. You know, she hadn't been to college, but she discovered that theology is for her as well. It's not an elite activity. Only so will the church be the church. And there's many a wise clergy person, preacher, pastor, who knows that actually, after the sermon, this lady here, that gentleman there, they may not have any formal theological training, but their one word of comment will be the thing that the wise preacher or pastor really needs to hear. They'll have had that insight. But the center of it all, and I'm going to close with this. I've been talking for an hour, I see. Goodness, I'm jet lag. Um, the center of it all, the center of it all is prayer. Prayer and theology are not two separate activities. And so often, and this is part of the Enlightenment again, we've treated theology as organizing these concepts, reading these books, writing these papers, whatever it is, and then prayer is the sort of pious bit that you do at the side. No. They've got to flow into and out of one another. That wonderful poem by George Herbert, which ends, Something Understood. It's about prayer, and that's about theology. In the book, I talk about one of the most famous and noblest rabbis of them all, Rabbi Akiba. Akiba supported Bar Kokhba, who led the revolt against Rome in 132 AD. Hadrian had produced some anti-Jewish legislation, was going to ban circumcision. Some countries in Europe trying to do that at the moment, interestingly. Um, and he was also going to turn Jerusalem into a thoroughgoing pagan city at last. And some of the Jews said, that's it, this must be the time for God to act. And we think this man, Simeon ben Kozibar, we'll call him the son of the star, Bar Kokhba. He's the Messiah. And Akibar said, yes, he is the Messiah. Some of his friends disagreed, but Akibar stuck with it. The revolt lasted three years. And at the end of the three years, the Romans came and did what the Romans did best. Caught him and killed him. And as they were torturing Rabbi Akibar to death, which they did by combing his flesh with steel combs, he was praying the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad, one. 
And some of his disciples who were there said, Master, how can you still be praying this even under these circumstances? And he said, all my life I have loved him with my heart and my mind and my strength. And I've wondered what it would mean to love him with my life. And now that I have the chance to do it, shall I not take it? And he died with the word echad on his lips. That's a noble vision. Now Paul has taken that Shema prayer and in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he has discovered the crucified and risen Jesus at the heart of it. And I sometimes think, and of course we don't know this and it's pure fantasy, Paul in prison. A few weeks ago I stood in the house recently excavated which some archaeologists think is where Paul was kept under house arrest. Uh, we don't know that for sure. We don't know any of that stuff for sure. But still, I was thinking about this then. Paul in prison, knowing that the time has come, waiting for the executioner. It would be kinder than Akibar. It would just be a sword because he was a citizen. But I imagine Paul praying that same prayer only as you find it in 1 Corinthians 8. Alhemin his theos hapater exuta pantaka hemisis auton. One God the Father, from whom are all things, and we to him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. That's the heart of Christian prayer, rooted in the Jewish tradition, reworked dangerously, radically, around the crucified and risen Messiah. It's the heart of Christian theology. I suggest it's the heart of Christian prayer. That's really where I want to end tonight. Thank you very much. I've been studying 1 Timothy 2 along with Augustus' marriage laws. Are the two related, i.e., women shall be saved through childbirth related to just trium laborum, is Paul showing a strategy of advancing the gospel versus a home life strategy? Well, well we'd warm up with an easy one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, the answer is very easy. I don't know. Um, uh, I, um, it may be that there are some recent commentaries on First Timothy which discuss that possibility. I haven't, I confess, come across that myself. Uh, of course, we always have to put in the scholarly twitch of a footnote that not everyone thinks Paul wrote First Timothy, but even if you do, that's actually not the bit that people normally discuss. The bit people normally discuss, well, they do discuss that, but the bit they normally discuss is um, the bit which is translated in the King James Version, I suffer not a woman to teach, etc. Um, and there, I think, there's something quite different going on, because the Greek is quite odd. There's a word there which occurs there and there only in the New Testament, and it's not clear what it means. Um, so it is, a, it is a contentious verse. The bit about childbearing, it's quite possible that it does actually have resonances with some bits of Roman law. Um, I'd need to see that spelt out, and I haven't, I'm, I'm not aware of, of how that would work. I think the normal reading of the woman will be saved through childbearing is that he's actually been alluding to Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3, the pain of childbearing appears to be part of the curse of the fall, and I don't think he means, however you read it, I don't think he means that the way for a woman to be saved is by having children, but that when a woman has children, um, the curse of the fall 
okay, it'll mean pain, but you will be saved through it, as it were, rather than that this is a means of, of salvation. Can you put into a, a, a capsule uh, the Holy Spirit in Paul's theology? Can you? Well, um, not easily, but I, there's a couple of things that I would say, and I just hinted at them before, that if you live in a world, the Second Temple Jewish world, where there is this sense of puzzled expectation that God has promised he will come back and dwell in the midst of his people, then the place that he's going to come back to dwell is, of course, the temple. And the word that you use for dwelling in the temple, living in the temple, is, is the word which in Greek has the root oikos, which means house. He's coming to take up residence in this house, en oikeo, to live within. Paul uses that language and the image of the temple. You've got more questions coming, far more than we can possibly take, I'm sure. Paul uses that language and that imagery of the temple to talk about the Holy Spirit. In other words, he sees, and this is again and again, he sees the Holy Spirit as the way in which the God who promised to come back to his people has come back to dwell in their midst. 2 Corinthians 3, the famous passage about, about the Spirit, um, he's, he's there working with the end of the book of Exodus, and the end of the book of Exodus is about the building of the tabernacle and the Shekinah, the glory coming and dwelling within it. So when Paul uses that language about the Spirit, this is the return of Yahweh to Zion language, this is the new Exodus language, and then when he talks in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 about being led by the Spirit to the inheritance, this is again clearly Exodus language where it is the, um, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, which is God's own personal presence that leads the people to their inheritance. So when Paul says that about the Spirit, you can't get a higher pneumatology than that. People have often said that the early church didn't really figure out whether the Spirit was God or not, and it didn't happen for 400 years until the Cappadocian fathers had done their work and so on. No, the early church struggled for hundreds of years to catch up with the very Jewish idea of the full divinity of the Spirit, which was there in the very earliest texts. What distinguishes the W-R-I-G-H-T, right perspective, on Paul from other ways of reading Paul in the New Testament. I, I, I will put it into my language. What makes your view and those who share it uh, distinct or stand out from the views you read from other people? The, it's impossible to answer because there's dozens and literally dozens and dozens of different views on Paul out there and to map even a few of them would be very difficult and inappropriate here. I think though that some of the critical things have emerged quite clearly tonight, namely a focus on the Jewish narrative, the single Jewish narrative from Genesis through Exodus right the way on through leading to the Messiah, but that single Jewish narrative not as a steady development. People have sometimes tried to express it in terms of progressive revelation of God gradually revealing more and more and more of himself until finally Finally, there we are with Jesus. That's not how it is at all. But nevertheless, it is a narrative. It just goes through all sorts of twists and turns and seems to go underground and be lost completely. And then the new thing happens. But when the new thing happens, it is the fulfillment of what God always said. He would. There's a paradox there. One of my students was struggling with this in a seminar, and he said, I think what we're saying is that God acts shockingly, surprisingly, unexpectedly, as he always said he would. Um, and so there's that, there's, that sense of, there's that sense of a narrative 
with something radically new, and yet the radically new thing turns out to be the fulfillment after all, to everyone's surprise. So I have worked that through in terms of the continuous narrative, both of Israel in exile and then the restoration, and of Yahweh returning from exile. I don't think most of my colleagues have done it like that, and I know that some of them are really rather resistant to the idea. But, um, you know, there we are. What, hmm. pract- well. what practical suggestions would you have for churches to engage in theological discussion across denominational lines? Well, theological discussion is something we ought to be doing across denominational lines. The best way of doing it, to be honest, is to read the Bible together. And uh, one of the thrills that I had towards the end of my time in Durham was to spearhead some ecumenical Lenten Bible study groups, really because uh, I was the Anglican observer at the Synod of Bishops in Rome in 2008 when they were discussing the Bible, and all these Catholic bishops saying, what a pity we can't share the Eucharist with our Protestant brothers and sisters, but there's nothing stopping us reading the Bible with them. And... I eventually, it was my turn to speak, I said in, um, didn't put it quite like this, but nearly, wish you chaps had said this in 1525, life would have been so much easier. Um, <laughs> but, but, but we've had a wonderful time in the north of England with ecumenical Bible study groups because if you start with the big dogmatic statements that, ooh, do you believe in this dogma or don't you believe in that one, then you go round and round in circles and half the people present, probably they learnt the dogma in Sunday school but they haven't thought it through. But if you take a psalm or a parable or a bit of Romans 5 or 8 or or a bit of Revelation if you're daring and actually just sit around and pray and say, what's this actually about? and get a little bit of help here and there, then actually the divisions which emerge in the group will often have very little to do with the denominational divisions. They may occur at quite other, pass- at quite other places, and you will just learn a huge amount. Um, your Paul book is number four. How many more volumes will you <laughs> write, and when? Uh, it's a question you should ask my wife, I think. Um, the... the The aim originally was five volumes. There was an extra one that snuck in there. The one on the resurrection wasn't part of the original plan. So technically it ought now to be six because the next one ought to be on the Gospels and then the final one ought to be basically on early Christian missiology. Um, I don't know um, is the answer. All my adult life I have wanted to write the big book on Paul. I now have finally written it and in some ways I'm feeling a bit nunc dimittisi about it. You know, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Um, But... um, uh, I, I hope I will be able to do that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, this one gets read simply because of its title. To the very right, Reverend Wright. <laughs> one, as a minister in the Presbyterian Church of America, PCA, I have witnessed much debate over your, quote, new perspective, close quote. Could you summarize your perspective on justification where it differs from Calvin or from the Westminster Confession? Uh, I could. It would take about half an hour, which we don't have. But let me just, I mean, let me say a couple of, put down a couple of markers. First, I'm much closer to Calvin himself than I am to, say, either to Luther or, I think, to the Westminster Confession. But that's, that's a kind of a technicality which not everyone here will be, be, uh, be needing, perhaps. Um, the, the critical thing about what I and some others at one stage about 40 years ago called the new perspective was a fresh reading of Second Temple Judaism. If you read Josephus, Philo, the scrolls, all the literature of that period, you don't find people saying, we want to go to heaven and the way to do it is to do more and more good work so God will be pleased with us. You really don't. 
yes, you do find people saying um, that when we know who God's people are, um, they can know that in the present because they possess the Torah, etc. And at the final judgment day, God will see how well they did with keeping what they were given. And people say, well, there you are. That's Judaism for you. Trouble is, um, Jesus says exactly that in Matthew, and Paul says exactly that in Romans 2 and Second Corinthians 5, etc. You know, at the judgment, each one will be judged according to what they've done. Um, the idea of a final judgment according to works does not mean that all Jews were proto-Pelagians trying to pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps. It simply doesn't. So the first and most important thing, I think, about the new perspective so-called was its reappraisal of Second Temple Judaism. Now, of course, Judaism's plural were very complex in the period. There is no monolithic thing which you can just say, there it is. Nevertheless, that immediately frees you up to say, so what was Paul's problem? Why did he say in Galatians what he does about beware of, of that, of that uh, Jewish way of life which is trying to pull you in as Gentile Christians? And the answer then is not that they're trying to teach you about how to justify yourself by doing good works, but they are trying to have a form of the people of God which remains for Jews and Jews only. So anyone who wants to join it has to become Jewish. And Paul says, no, the meaning of the cross is other than that. It's that the whole business of the people of God has been translated out from there. So that's the, that's the real emphasis for me of the new perspective. The trouble is that Ed Sanders, who, was the, who wrote the biggest book that launched the new perspective, never, I think, saw that narrative of Judaism, never saw a lot of that, which I and several others, Richard Hayes, for instance, have made central. And so within the new perspective, there are major problems. And Sanders particularly, um, his book was not actually about theology. It was about patterns of religion. That was the subtitle. And that's a real problem because many people in America have said, oh, well, new perspective, it's all about a horizontal thing rather than a vertical thing. It's patterns of religion and community rather than salvation. I never said that. Dunn never said that. Hayes never said that. Um, Sanders did tend to push that way because that's what he was studying. So there are problems there. When it comes to justification itself... I tried to do a brief summary towards the end of chapter 10 of the book, and the brief summary, I think, had about seven points, one of which subdivided into a further seven. Um, it's, you know, it, it does get complicated, but basically it's about God's eschatological judgment, decision. That means God looking to the future and saying... Instead of saying we're waiting for the end before we say anything about anybody, God has brought his future judgment into the middle of history in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where God has said, here are my people. I have dealt with their sin. I have launched new creation. That's happened in the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. Therefore, those who are in the Messiah have that verdict already pronounced over them. What is the badge that says they're in the Messiah? Answer their pistis, their faith. And so Paul says three times that we are justified in the Messiah. That's something which many Reformation traditions have not said. Calvin actually did say that. I don't think the Westminster Confession does that nearly so well. And as a result, the Westminster Confession develops from the Reformers this idea of 
uh, God or Jesus having righteousness as something which they've got a lot of, which they can then impute to the sinner. That's a clever way of getting the result, namely that you're okay now because of what Jesus did, but actually it's not something that Paul ever says. And I will defend that to the hilt because there are one or two potential counterexamples like 2 Corinthians 5.21, which people here will know about perhaps. But um, it seems to me that the Westminster Confession was trying to get the right results, namely assurance, by the wrong means and distorted several key passages in order to do that. And so I'm, I'm not saying that the Westminster Confession's aim of stressing grace and hence stressing assurance, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I think there are more biblical ways of doing it rather than less biblical ways of doing it. That, that's a very, very, very short answer. And since this is going on the internet, there are about a thousand hostages to fortune there. And if you want to pick them up, please take it up with my book first before you write to me. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> In, in that regard, our, our speaker that, that we have next coming, uh, Dr. Floyd, uh, I recall as a student in his class one time, uh, uh, someone asking him, and I'm going to tell you this story and then ask you your comments so I can ask him about it uh, in light of what you said when we do this with him in a month or so. Uh, a student said to him, Dr. Floyd, would you tell us about the day you were saved? And he says, oh, I would love to. It happened almost 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and he started describing that, that very thing. And those who are in Christ, that was their, their moment of salvation. Would you uh, have any comment on such an approach? <laughs> that, that's a great approach. I mean, the gospel, the word gospel is good news and, new, and it's news rather than advice. You may remember about 20 years ago, there was a movement in America called the Jesus Seminar um, 15, 20 years ago, and the Jesus Seminar were taking all the news bits out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were bringing in lots of stuff from the Gospel of Thomas and other documents like that, and they were turning the whole thing into good advice. Here's how you might like to live your life. That's not what the original message was about. It was about something that was happening as a result of which everything would be different. And something was happening then, something would happen in the future. And the point about what happens to us is that we find ourselves caught and held between that decisive past event and that ultimate future event. Um, so, yes, great answer um, that, that, that actually it was when God did what God did in the death and resurrection of his son, the Messiah. That's the real event. And in a sense, what has happened to me is really very trivial by comparison. The danger with much later Protestant and revivalist Christianity is so much emphasis has been put on the me that that plays into either a romantic or an existentialist feature of late Western culture, which then makes Jesus just the means to an end, to me having an experience. And you know, my experiences are, in a sense, irrelevant. Um, what matters is what happened and what will happen as public truth. Okay, time for just one or two more. Um, uh, the, the problem I have, I'm trying to be faithful to your questions, but everything he says, I want to ask more questions about <laughs> myself. So I'm, I'm, I'm fighting that. Uh, uh, fighting that. Um, who is your favorite theologian from church history? That's a good question. Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I, it's not easy to answer because I'm very eclectic in my reading. Um, and I've enjoyed different people at different stages. I'm talking while I'm thinking. I mean, I, I did learn a huge amount from Calvin when I studied him. Um, but I found 
and have found since all sorts of things which make me think, but no, actually, um, you know, that's just not the way it is. Having said some rather um, daring things about Bart before, I still think Bart was one of the great Christian minds of all time. Um, and I think some of his later work, the, the further you go on in the church dogmatics, the more I think I want to agree with it. Um, and, of course, one of the things that was going on there was that Bart was seeing very clearly, very early on, what was wrong with the Third Reich when an awful lot of people in Germany and elsewhere in Europe couldn't see it at all. And, you know, one honours him for that while criticising him on, on other fronts. As, um, you know, I hope that in future people will find things to honour me on as well. I know they'll find plenty to criticise me on. But, uh, um, so, yeah, I want to say Irenaeus and Augustine as well but I'm not a scholar of either of them. Um, I just think, yeah, those are extraordinary minds. And even, again, where we're going to disagree, we, we can learn a huge amount.